Welcome to the Exponential View podcast. I'm Azim Azar, your host and the creator of the newsletter Exponential View. Today's conversation is with Turkish-British novelist Elif Shafak. She is an astute observer of our political culture. And in our discussion, we explore what she describes as our current epistemic crisis. We look at what's happening with democracy and the challenge of populism and the relationship those trends have with technology and social media. And we explore how we can remain optimistic in these times of anger, anxiety, and change. Before we get to my conversation, let me tell you about Exponential View. It's my way of explaining how the world is changing under the force of technology. The podcast, these conversations with brilliant minds, is one avenue. The other is through my free newsletter, a wonder missive which lands in your inbox every Sunday. If you haven't subscribed, you can find it at www.exponentialview.co. For the next few weeks, the Exponential View podcast is sponsored by Spotify. I'm a massive fan of Spotify, and they've now added another killer feature, a podcast hub where you can get your favorite shows, including this one. So next time you launch Spotify, search for Exponential View and pick up the next episode there. Now on to my conversation with Elif Shafak. So today I'm in conversation with a world-renowned linguistic nomad, the Turkish-British novelist Elif Shafak. Elif, lovely to have you here. Thank you. So we are meeting on a cold January morning. Uh, it happens to be one of the days where the world's elite is gathering in Davos for the World Economic Forum. And sometimes it feels to me that they feel a bit insecure uh, at the moment. What do you think is going on? It's it's funny, until recently, I think there was this perception that some parts of the world were solid lands, they were safe and steady, these, these were places where democracy had been consolidated. And some other parts of the world, such as Turkey, the Middle East, were regarded as liquid lands, not yet settled, mm. still evolving, not yet there. But this linear version of history, I think, has been challenged to a large extent after the year 2016. And now we know there's no such thing as solid lands versus liquid lands. And actually, we're all living in liquid times, as the late philosopher Zygmunt Bauman had mm. told us early on. So we all need to face the, the time we're living and, and face the inequalities that are making things much, much worse. I mean, in a sense, what we had done in uh, Western democracies was paper over the differences between people, between beliefs, between the assets and resources people could claim to have. And we created a narrative of uh, a single narrative that said growth was good and growth will take you out of this uh, conundrum. But yet we found find ourselves certainly, as you say, in the last three years uh, in the UK, in the US and in other so-called formerly solid lands looking at very, very unsteady foundations. And you will remember until recently, it wasn't that long ago, this extreme optimism, we would, growth would automatically bring democracy. With democracy, things would become easier. On top of that, the optimism, extreme opt optimism of the tech world was added. And, and so the prediction was we were all going to become one big global village and nationalism was going to lose its grip. Religions were going to become in the long run weaker in a way. Um, and, and thanks to the, uh, the travel of ideas, um, technology and capital, 
we were going to be so interconnected that all the problems would wither away almost on their own. And that kind of optimism, extreme optimism, was of course unwarranted. And I think we have failed to see the dark side of technology as well. So my worry is, it is as if there's a pendulum and we have swung to the other extreme and now we are wallowing in extreme pessimism. And maybe that's not good either. We need to have a more balanced approach. And maybe mm-hmm. what Gramsci said years ago could be a guide for all of us. He used to talk about the pessimism of the intellect, but the optimism of the will, optimism of the heart. And I think in these days, particularly, we need both the pessimism of the intellect and the optimism of the heart. The the process that you described, I think, is a, is a fascinating one. Uh, we we believed that the internet would provide a, a global village that would in some sense be uh, an equalizing force. And, and there are some great examples uh, of this. I was in Dublin a, a couple of weeks ago and there was a competition for young scientists. And there was a 17-year-old girl who had written a piece of uh, machine learning to more accurately detect uh, abnormal cancer cells in cervical smears. Better than a better than a normal human doctor. And she used a technique that had only been in universities, sort of released in universities three or four years earlier. So it had only taken three or four years to this, for this technique to go from unpublished academic papers to use in a high school science project. And that's the impact, the positive impact, I think, of the internet. But I think the thing that we perhaps lost track of was that in some sense, people are, are still people. And so we also made it easier to connect with our the things that root us more deeply and the things that make us afraid of the world. And that seems to be some part of the the new public space. I, I'm, it's as easy for me to associate with a liberal, rights-oriented thinker in the U.S. who may be opposed to uh, certain Supreme Court picks than it is for me to relate to the man or the woman who lives three houses away from me. Yeah, I think what we've failed, I mean, when I look at the writings of 1990s, uh, early 2000s, academia, media, lots lots of articles, predictions back then, failed to see the complexity of technology and in particular of this digital era and, and social media. So I think the social media is a bit like the moon. There's mm-hmm. no doubt that it has a bright side. <laughs> right. And how can I underestimate that bright side? I mean, coming from the Middle East, a region like the Middle East, I have seen... And I am a feminist and I have seen many women who do not feel like they have a voice in the public space. And yet when they go online, there is another public space there for them, particularly for young women. And the number of users, female, young female users of the internet is is quite high, actually. And that is important, that people do feel connected, that cultural discussions are not solely focused on a few places, but can be more diffused. And in that sense, it does have a more egalitarian aspect. I can never underestimate that. But on the other hand, it has a very dark side too. Mm -hmm. And it is the dark side that we haven't talked about enough, Mm -hmm. thought about enough, and are not prepared to deal with even now. And that is what worries me. Because of not only hate speech... Which is a which is a serious issue that we should we should um, 
deal with, not only the, the kind of vicious language that's used over the social media, particularly against women, I think gender is a big criteria mm -hmm. there, but also the level of misinformation. We don't even know how to deal with a bombardment of information, let alone the question of how to deal with a bombardment of misinformation. My worry is, I think there's an epistemic crisis at the moment. It is almost as if the more information and misinformation we have to deal with, the less we know and the less we understand the world. Well, that epistemic crisis is, is such a fascinating one because we went from a... a a point historically a few hundred years ago of not having very much information and really living around with myths and rumor to having an overwhelming amount of information steadily from the printing press through to uh, you know the you know, mass distribution of books through to the the internet and we were struggling with our judgment under a sea of information and you just made the observation that there's been this second wave now which is the arrival of misinformation. We're still figuring out how to deal with late 90s Google and Wikipedia. Definitely. And now we're dealing with Russian botnets and you know, scandalous stories that, that, that make their way around the world before they're disproven. Um, I think it's very correct to, to, to use the analogy of the printing machine because in many ways this is that kind of a transformation. It's a massive change. Um, and, and until recently, we could say that the sources of information were relatively clustered in the center uh, and, and more marginal voices could be kept on the periphery. I'm not saying this always was a good thing, but that was the structure. Now the periphery has come to the center. But I want to clarify it more. I think there are almost as if there are different ecosystems when I look in the, in the, in, to the digital world. And what worries me is people who follow one ecosystem, they want to have nothing to do with the other ecosystem. And so we're now debating the truth, um, let alone reaching an agreement or a consensus. So depending on where you are, which epistemic tribe you mm -hmm. belong to, you get your sources of information from a completely different channel and just refuse to believe the other side, wholesale rejection based on a wholesale rejection. Those are the things that worry me a lot because I come from a country such as Turkey where that kind of polarization only worked into the hands of the populist demagogues. When I believe when societies are divided so badly and when they lose their consensus and coexistence, uh, democracy cannot survive in the long run. Once we lost media diversity and freedom, the decline was very, very swift. For a while, however, the social media was very politicized in Turkey because when you can't learn the truth, let's say, or, or, or hear different voices um, from in the media, then people move towards the social media as an alternative mm. source. That went on for a couple of years in Turkey and relatively um, platforms such as Twitter, Facebook, when I would compare them with Twitter and Facebook in other countries, in Turkey they were extremely politicized. Mm. So people don't go on Facebook to talk about the movies they've seen or the cakes they have eaten, but to talk about political issues. However, that too has changed because now there is a stricter control and many people have been sued because of a tweet they wrote or a retweet. And I think at the end of the day today where we are right now every writer journalist academic 
poet, historian in Turkey knows that because of something you say in an interview, in a tweet, in an article, in a poem, you can get into trouble so easily. Words have become heavy in Turkey. Mm. And because we know that, there's there's widespread self-censorship as well. And that's a very difficult subject to talk about. You know, the, the kind of fear that you internalize, mm. the kind of censorship that you as an individual apply to yourself. That's that's where we are. But the decline began with the loss of media diversity. And 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 what happens, I, th- I think that the pattern that you describe shows that it's not a linear narrative. A, a new radical technology comes comes along. Of course, the radicals are the first to discover it, but the state apparatus can follow soon after. And I think the strategies that you now see states in general uh, adopting which include much more meticulous tracking better analysis of what gets said in the digital sphere means that it's no longer the place where you can post the uh you know the video of the policeman beating up the, the workers because they'll be able to track it back to to the account and they can apply pressure on the networks and and, and so on Yes, absolutely. And again, this will take us back to the optimism of the uh, early 2000s. I mean, remember when Arab Spring started, uh, I read so many articles predicting that thanks to Facebook and, and Twitter and technology, now citizens would be able to hold politicians accountable. And if there was any injustice or a gross violation of human rights, they would just record it and post it online and that would be the end of it. So we would make progress altogether. Mm. But it works also the other way around. Uh, and that is the dark side that we have to see. And unfortunately, autocratic regimes have understood the dark side of technology much faster. Not only them, but I believe the alt-right too is using technology very efficiently, creating their own islands of networks. Uh, and that is, again, something we need to we need to understand. Most of the um, mainstream or liberal or left, you know, I'm, I'm using these terms very vaguely. They mm. might mean different things depending on different countries. But people in that terrain derive, learn from, still from mainstream media. But there's another part of the population that doesn't look at that mainstream media and they go to their own sources uh, on social media. And those sources have created a completely different platform. The gap between these two worlds, the epistemic gap, is incredibly sharp and wide and it's something that worries me. Just a reminder, this podcast is sponsored by Spotify. I'm a massive fan of the service and I'm delighted that Spotify has now launched a podcast hub. This means you can find all the episodes of the Exponential View podcast there, launch the app and search Exponential View. Now, back to our conversations. I'm curious about this this epistemic gap and what it actually teaches us about uh, ourselves and our willingness or desire or latent need to identify in a group. Because what one, you could argue, that this um, sort of halcyon, uh, end of history mode of nation states and liberal democracies and we all come together in a common space um, was, was a, a, a sort of a, a, a drug, an alternate reality that was, was fed to us. And the moment those covers were peeled away and we were given certain technologies, we turned out to be tribal, we turned out to be, to be local. Uh, is there any merit in that in that lens? 
I think in many ways the age we're living in is one in which emotions very much guide and misguide politics. And we need to put more thought into emotions mm. and we need more emotional intelligence on the table. Uh, in many ways, I think this is the age of anger, anxiety. There's there's a lot of angst, you know, almost an existential angst um, and resentment and bitterness. So what worries me is oftentimes these populist demagogues that we're talking about, they're much better in terms of connecting to that emotional pool, you know, addressing those emotional issues. Um, and they use a very different language, a visceral one, but they use a different and, and a very effective language. Um, so we need those exercises, those mental exercises as well. Another thing that's happening is because we are bombarded with this with information, and this was an issue that worried many people, you know, in the past, uh, what happens when we are subject to so much information, so many images, one after another? I think we become numb. Mm -hmm. We become desensitized. Mm -hmm. And that's a very difficult, uh, dangerous, sorry, that's mm -hmm. a very dangerous threshold. Actually, many people who have gone through lots of tragedies in human history, when you read their accounts, they read this, they tell you the same thing, that the opposite of kindness is not necessarily evil, that horrible things do not necessarily happen because people are horrible. But they say it's happening when people are numb, you know, when they're desensitized, when you stop feeling for the other. It really doesn't matter anymore. From that threshold of numbness onwards, anything can happen. And that, those are the things that I believe we need to pay more attention to. Bringing emotional intelligence into the public sphere uh, seems to be quite challenging because, in a sense, the the history of performance of organisations has increasingly been about mechanisation and Fordism and metrics and targets. Whether it's a factory, whether it is the way the welfare state or the national health service in the UK works, performance comes from a discretization, a breaking down, an engineering mindset that puts numbers. So one other uh, thing that I'm interested in exploring is um, how we reconcile the, the value, the importance of knowledge and wisdom and custom that is gained locally, perhaps in the, in the family domain, with the way in which we generate other types of knowledge, particularly science, scientific knowledge that is often uh, delivered as a global maxim. This is what the, the, the science says. Um, and, and it often brings to mind the, the, the discussion of the two cultures, C.P. Snow, um, where he's identifying the distinction between the sort of cultures that come from the tradition of, of the arts and literature, uh, which in, to a large extent is your domain, and the cultures that come from science. And it seems like a lot of our discussion today has identified tools that have emerged out of technocratic thinking that have come to bite us. Is there some way of, of reconciling those two cultures, those two ways of thinking? Yes, and I think it's, it's very important. You know, a curious mind, in a way, knows no limits, right? If we are, if we have curious minds, we like to learn, and we're learners all our lives. Um, but the moment we start to compartmentalize and 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 divide knowledge into categories and say that's not my terrain, I don't want to, I'm not interested in that, we're losing those connections. 
And that doesn't help us. One of the biggest problems we've experienced is we have amazing genius minds, brilliant minds in the tech world, but they don't know much about uh, politics. You know, they don't know much about what's happening in other parts of the world. And when you lose the connections, you might make mistakes or vice versa. Can, we no, need to say, learn from each other. Well, l- let's talk about the, the, the tech world because not only do they not necessarily know much about politics, they perhaps don't know much about uh, people's individual lives and values. I'm thinking about Facebook as an example. Two and a half billion people are on Facebook. Yeah. When you sign up to Facebook, yeah. you're asked a question about your marital status. One of the choices is it's complicated. Now that means that tens, hundreds of millions of people around the world for whom they have no knowledge of it's complicated. My mother, who is in her late 70s, Muslim from Pakistan, was asked that question it doesn't, it doesn't even pass for her. It makes no sense. She has no frame of reference. And the, her only frame of reference is that she was asked that by, by Facebook. So I, I think it, it runs even more, more deeply to that, which is that these technologies, these platforms have now become a part of the fabric of our everyday existence. And they inveigle themselves into our value systems in ways in which we're not comfortable. Uh, Actually, that's an amazing example. And I I think we need to bear in mind that no part of the world is the center of the world. Once we think we are at the center of the world, we start making mistakes. Uh, That's an amazing example. And it also shows us how sometimes concepts do not travel. The same questions need to be formulated in in other ways. And those cultural gaps do matter. And we need to put more effort and thought into how to bridge them. Um, but it's the same package, isn't it? I mean, having too much faith, having too much optimism about technology and thinking that once we do this, the whole world is going to follow us anyhow. Well, it doesn't really work that way. And maybe we need to go back to that Renaissance mind in which, uh, you know, we had, we were able to learn from different fields. We need to promote that kind of intellect that's also open to emotional intelligence, to learning from different sources. I personally believe, uh, I think it's faith, for instance, the subject of faith is too important to leave to the ultra-religious mm-hmm. or patriotism is too important to leave to the nationalists or politics is too important to leave to politicians. You know, there, there are all these areas that we do not think about enough yeah. and yet we have to put more thought into um, so I, I question those uh, categorical distinctions and I find them very, very artificial. Let me build on your, your statement there that faith is too, too important to be left to the ultra-religious and politics to the politicians. One of the things I've said a lot about my newsletter has been that technology is too important to be left to technologists. Uh, and that what it does is it creates demands on us, I think, as individuals to be, be aware, be listening, be reading, be critical be in discussions that are they're sometimes a little bit uncomfortable to be honest and maybe it is easier to sit on the couch and watch Netflix well that is true but I think we have to be in in that sense more active citizens and keep an eye on what's going on on social media the kind of misinformation that's been circulated and we have had enough experiences when the um, when when the terrorist attacks happened in London immediately the circulation of misinformation and you see where that is going and where that is coming from we have to be alert we have to be active citizens or when um 
you know, radical extremist views are posted on Facebook before the genocide in, in Myanmar. We see where that is going. Mm. You know, we, we don't, we cannot afford being so passive about these issues. Um, to me, the, the, the contradiction is amazing. I mean, you will remember again in 1990s, there were all these claims that the tech world, the digital world was going to become, going to be a world in which gender was not an issue. You know, mm. not important. Mm. Not not even it won't. It wouldn't even be mentioned. Race or um, one's religious background or national background. All of these things were going to evaporate. And actually, what's happening is almost the opposite. Just a few weeks ago, a teenage girl has been auctioned on Facebook as a child bride, and Facebook was able to take that down only after she had been married off by by her family forcefully so we're too late we're too slow we're too reluctant to step in there are these issues all my life i've defended freedom of speech mm. and to me that is a core core value but i'm also aware of the dangers of absolute um, you know, an absolute principle of freedom of speech in which you say, well, anyone can mm. write whatever they want. No, it's not like that. If it incites violence, if someone's life is in danger, we need to be careful about these issues and we need to take more active measures. And in that sense, I think tech companies have not done enough. But, and, but do we even trust, would you trust Facebook to be the arbiter of what can go in and, and what, what, what can't? Nobody can be uh, the arbiter alone. Mm. I think we all need to be involved. That's why the impetus, the energy needs to come from the civil society, from the citizens, from us. That's why we need more active citizens from now on. Earlier in our conversation, you brought up the Gramsci quote, uh, the, the pes- that we needed the pessimism of the intellect and the optimism of the will. As you look forward over the next few years, which is uh, dominating your intellect or your will at this point? Are you pessimistic or are you optimistic? Well, you know, coming from my part of the world, it's it's very difficult not to be pessimistic when you see how societies go backwards, how rights and liberties have been taken away one by one. That makes you very pessimistic. The state of politics and, and politicians across the world makes me very pessimistic. But then when I talk to people, young people, you know, women, minorities of, of all backgrounds, then you are filled with hope because even under very dire circumstances, people are still struggling, they're, they put effort, they're dreaming, uh, and they're striving for a better world. And that gives us the optimism we need. So I really think we need both at this moment in time. Elif Shafak, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you. Well, if you found the Exponential View podcast valuable, there are simple ways you can do to support it. Number one, subscribe to get a new episode each week. Number two, rate and review the podcast wherever you listen to it. This really helps us reach more people. And number three, share this episode on social media or email it to your colleagues. I really appreciate it. Until next week. The Exponential View podcast is hosted by Azim Azar and produced by Maria Gavrilov. Boyan Sabiacello is a sound editor. Hello.